Cross Point. It's been a while since I've been here. Y'all gotta make me feel like I'm at home here. Good morning, Cross Point. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name is A.D. I'm one of the elders here at the church. And today we're actually going to be starting back in our series in the book of Mark. If you've been here for any amount of time, you know we've been in the book of Mark. We've been following Jesus together. And uh, we took a little bit of a break for a couple weeks. And so today will be our first day resuming um, our study in the book of Mark. And before we get started, I'm going to give us a, a brief recap. Um, as you know, uh, the book of Mark spans a period of a little bit over three years. And so for the first couple chapters, actually up until chapter 8, chronicles the first three years of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so a couple months back, we started in chapter 1 where we were discussing who is Jesus and why does it matter? The one who was prophesied, the one who came and he did signs and wonders to validate um, who he was. And so the emphasis in that first message was to listen to this person who is Jesus. Then we went on to talk about the strong and tender hand of God, meaning that in the midst of hearing so many voices in our culture and in our society, how are we able to listen to the voice of God? How are we able to discern the voice of God? Then later on, we followed up with what I need versus what I want. Uh, that God goes past the surface to address the core needs of people that came to him, and therefore he can also meet our needs too as well. We also talked about the end of religion. Um, and that we would not be uh, inclined to following rules um, as opposed to God allowing God to address the heart issues. Then we talked about in chapter 3, uh, the pressure and peace, how Jesus was able to handle the demands of ministry and how he was able to walk in peace. And as a result of him being able to do that, that we're able to do the same. Then we talked about belief and belonging, how Jesus was often misunderstood and misrepresent, uh, misrepresented. And the emphasis in that message was what do we believe about Jesus and who do we listen to? Then chapter 4, we spoke about listen and see, the parables that Jesus spoke and the disposition of our hearts when we hear uh, Jesus talking. Are we leaning in or are we leaning away from Jesus as he's speaking? Chapter 4, we also talked about the storm and doubts and how what we believe actually informs how we live. Then we moved on to talk about desperation and grace, that how the grace of God is so vast that it meets many different people from many different walks of life. We talked about desperate dependence, what it means when we bring our insufficiencies to God and we lay our insufficiencies at the feet of Jesus, what he's able to do with it. Then we talked about tradition versus truth. What are we following? Are we merely following the traditions of man or are we actually following the truth? Chapter 7, we talked about prejudice and superiority, the attitude that the disciples had to a Gentile woman that came to Jesus begging for mercy. We talked about the importance of faith in chapter 8, that it not be such a, a thing that it's head knowledge, but it actually transforms to our hearts. We also talked about in chapter 8, Jesus predicting that he was going to die and how the disciples didn't understand what that meant. Chapter 9, we talked about discipleship being an ongoing hunger for the presence of God, the call to get away from the busyness of life to actually have our hearts transformed in his presence. Then we went on to talk about a servant's 
denial, uh, a servant's self-denial, which is the tendency that sometimes we have to compare ourselves to others and how the disciples were comparing themselves to one another. Chapter 10, we talked about the divorce, uh, Jesus on marriage and the divorce and the, the, the core of sin that really impacts why divorce comes about in the first place. Then we talked about empty hands, the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and he was asking, what must I do to be saved? And coming to Jesus free of the constraints and the things that tie us to this world. And finally, at the end of chapter 10, we talked about following Jesus with humility. Are we following Jesus with prideful ambition or are we truly surrendered to God? So we're going to get into uh, chapter 11. And I have titled this sermon, The After Images of Jesus. The After Images of Jesus. If you're not really sure what an after image is, it's when a stimulus hits your eyes, and because of the impact of that image, you continue to see it even though the stimulus is gone. So um, sometimes they have these little diagrams where they say, if you stare at this for 10 seconds and you turn away, you will actually see the imprint of that image even though you're not looking at the image anymore. After image. Images are extremely important. In our society, images are important. This is why we have statues. This is why we have pictures. Uh, loves pictures. Um, sometimes I get tired of taking pictures, but it's like, you know, we're looking to get this perfect picture because we want to capture this moment that is so special to us. We love pictures. For me, I have certain pictures that I cannot get out of my mind. Some of them are good memories, and some of them are not so good memories, right? So for me, one of the most precious memories I have is of my daughters. Um, <laughs> one of them is um, when uh, Aria was born, she was a preemie. And so my wife has this picture of her with these cables. And you see this small little child. I'm even getting emotional, sorry. <laughs> but it's like um, to see a small baby that has a bunch of tubes in them, it just melts my heart. <laughs> Um, and so for all of us, we have these images that resonate with us in particular ways because it's important to us, it's significant to us. Images are extremely important. And so what Jesus does in his entry to Jerusalem, this is his last day going into um, Jerusalem before he gets crucified, he gives us three powerful images that... I think he wants us to really meditate on it. He wants us to have these images, to be an afterimage in our minds, to shape and direct our thinking regarding his ministry, regarding the spiritual climate, and regarding disciples who abide in him. So the three images that he gives us, number one, is one of his ministry, number two, of the spiritual climate that he was operating in, and thirdly, the... Uh, the view of his disciples who are abiding in him. So those are the three points that we'll be covering um, during our sermon today. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Mark chapter 11, and we will start at verse 1. Mark chapter 11, and we're going to start at verse 1, and it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, 
Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. In verse 5, and some of them standing, some of those standing there said to them, Why are you doing, what are you doing untying the coat? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the coat to Jesus, and threw their cloaks on it, and sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. So the first image that you have, and this will be the first image if you're taking notes, slide is you have an image of Jesus on a donkey. He doesn't come in on a horse. He doesn't come in on a trained, mature animal. He comes in on a donkey. Comes in on a donkey. You guys have seen the Macy's, you know, Thanksgiving parades, and you've seen, uh, you know, the, these celebrations where you have these floats coming down, and extravagant, you know, well-decorated animals or whatever. Nobody comes in with a busted-up car. Nobody comes with... Jesus comes in on a donkey. Not only does he come in on a donkey, but it's young, and it's untrained, an untrained donkey. Now, if you know anything about donkeys, they're notorious for being stubborn animals, right? And so I can imagine the crowd just looking and like, what is this? A donkey? Like, seriously? Right? What is, what is this all about? And I can imagine that this donkey, again, no one has ever sat on this donkey. So really what that means is that it's been untrained. It has not been broken. Its will has not been broken. And so I can imagine him coming down. Maybe his feet are dragging on the ground because this donkey is, you know, small and bucking, trying to get Jesus off of its back, and not walking in a straight line with everybody else, just kind of going all over the place? Like, can you imagine seeing that? Like, what would you think if you saw that? Would you think of a king? Probably not. You would expect somebody with a big horse, you know, stallion, just kind of, you know, muscular. And... But Jesus says, I need this. I need this. Look at verse 3 again. He says, if someone says, why are you doing this? Says, the Lord has need of it. I need this. I don't know of too many other places in Scripture where it says that Jesus needs something. But optically, he's trying to communicate something. What is it that Jesus Christ is trying to communicate by him coming down on a young, untrained, wild donkey? And the point is this, if you're taking notes. Point number one. Entry on a donkey communicates his willingness to be led to the cross by stubborn and wayward humanity. Jesus' entry on a donkey, visually, it communicates his willingness to be led to the cross by stubborn and wayward humanity. Newsflash, you're the donkey. I'm serious. Every last one of us are that donkey. 
The donkey may have led him down the streets of Jerusalem, but you know what? You're the one that led him to the cross. I am. And this is why Jesus took an untrained donkey. He couldn't get a donkey that was well-trained and his world was broken because visually that would not capture the essence of what his ministry was about. Jesus needed it. Do you see yourself there? Point number two. Next slide. Jesus' entry on a donkey communicated the extent to which he would go to declare his love for the Father. Jesus' entry on a donkey extended, uh, communicated the extent to which he would go to declare his love for the Father. Now, for those of us who have people that we love in our lives, our children, maybe our parents, maybe a, a sibling, you know in an earthly sense what you would do for the sake of your family that you will lay down your life willingly. You would allow yourself to be humiliated if you love someone. If you, your, your love for that person is so intense, you are willing to do anything to declare that love to the world. And this is exactly what Jesus did. We talk about fools being in love and the stupid things that people do that are like, you did that for her? What? But Jesus loved his father so deeply, he was willing to be humiliated. He was willing to be mocked. He was willing to to look like a fool in the eyes of the world. He was willing to be beaten. He was willing to be killed because he wanted to declare his love for the father. We're the beneficiaries of that love. But really, what led him to the cross was his intense love for the father, that he would do whatever the father wanted because he loved him that deeply. Do you feel that? Are we moved by that kind of love? And some people got it. Some people got that message. Look at verse 9. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. I'm sure some of the people in the crowd didn't get it. All they saw was a wild animal and this guy trying to, you know, come come into the city of Jerusalem. That's all that they saw. But some people got it. And so the next slide, the image explained. The image explained. Number one. It's a fulfillment of scripture. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 says, Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's a direct reference to verse 7, which is quoted in, uh, that's a quotation of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Number two, a picture of salvation and deliverance. And verse 9 is a quote of Psalm chapter 118, verse 25, which says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Oh, Lord, we, give, we, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is good, and he has made his light to shine upon us. And thirdly, in verse 10, 
is a quote from Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 25, which, pictures, which gives us a picture of a time of harmonious relationship between the shepherd and the king, between the people and the shepherd and their king. In Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 25, my servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will walk in the rules and be careful to obey my statutes. So all of these three different passages of scripture point to the fact that some of the people understood what was taking place before their eyes. That this image of him coming down on a donkey was a fulfillment of scripture, that it painted the fact that there was going to be salvation and deliverance for them, and that there would be a time of a harmonious relationship with their shepherd and with their king. So that's the first image that we see. Image number two, the next slide. is a view of the spiritual climate at the time. Verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, He went to see it, went up close. He could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for uh, for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So the first thing that Jesus does, he has eight more days left before he dies. First thing that he does is he goes to the temple. Going to the temple was not something new for Jesus. If you recall, when Jesus was a young boy, he ended up in the temple and his parents couldn't find him. And he was talking to the religious leaders there. And so the first thing that he does is he goes into the temple. Last eight days of his life, the first thing that he goes, the first place that he goes to is to the temple. He looks around at everything. What is he looking for? What does he see? He's looking around at everything. This is a familiar place. Like if you go into a room, especially if it's yours, you know when something's out of place. At least I do, anyway. And he looks, soaks up the environment. What is he looking for? What does he see? Doesn't say. It doesn't say what he saw. You know what I think he saw? I think he was paying attention to what should not have been there. Maybe he saw the tables that they sold the pigeons on that weren't supposed to be there. Maybe it is that he saw the chairs of the money changers. Maybe there was some bird food that they didn't quite clean clean up totally. Maybe the tables had the marks of the money on the counters and he's soaking all of this up to get a feel for what's going on in the temple. And get this, it was late. And so, verse 11, it says, he went out to Bethany with the 12. And on the following day, when they came from Bethany and he was hungry, he saw the tree. So he came into Jerusalem at night, checked out the temple. They left to go to another city. And then they come back in the morning where it's daytime, where they can see everything. 
And then we see what happens. He curses the fig tree. Point three. Next slide. Jesus views the spiritual condition in the temple as a tree full of leaves but no fruit. He goes to the tree. He looks at the tree. From a distance, he sees a bunch of leaves, right? It has the appearance of fruitfulness, but when you get up close to it, there's no fruit on it. If you're hungry and you go to a tree, it's like you, you, you want to get something to eat. It's not like going into the fruit refrigerator. I know kids do this all the time, right? Mommy, there's no food. What do you mean there's no food? There's a bunch of food in the fridge, right? There's an expectation that if a tree has a bunch of, of leaves on it, that you can get something to eat. But what Jesus saw was totally different. Look at verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Saying, is it not written, my house shall be, a, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. I think what Jesus was trying to communicate through this image of a barren tree is the temple had the appearance of life. It gave the appearance of fruit bearing. It gave the appearance through its religious uh, forms that you could get life there. But upon closer inspection, upon looking around, there was no fruit. There's nothing but religion, empty religion. And this is why I think Jesus left and came back at daytime so that the disciples could get this picture that I'm trying to paint, that as I'm coming into Jerusalem and as I'm going into the temple, you get the connection between the tree and the spiritual condition of the people there, that it is empty, that it has the appearance of fruitfulness. It has the appearance of godliness, even as the scriptures talk about, but no substance, no power. Image two explained. Next slide. The temple or the house of God had become a place of commerce. The temple had become a place of commerce. This is just where we do business. We can make some money here. Number two, the temple, the house of God, no longer became a place where people had communion with God. One of the most tragic things we can experience is when God is removed, the space, that sacred space that God used to occupy is now occupied by something else. And I got news for you. Whenever you remove God from any place where he was before, 
something is going to fill that slot. That void is going to be filled by something else. And so what we see in the very place that is supposed to give life was empty tradition. The purpose was abandoned. The space was now filled with business, making money. The tragedy is when you become so accustomed to that, when that becomes normative. It's like nobody even noticed that this stuff was going on. Like this was just business as usual. Just get some pigeons, let's make some money. That was the state of the church, of the temple. We make accommodations for our sin. What accommodations have you made today as you look at your life? What space that used to be occupied with the sacredness of God has now been corrupted? Have you made accommodations for where he is no longer the place where you get life? Picture in the image of a barren tree. Next image, next slide, image, image number three. A view of faithfulness, fruitfulness, being the view of the disciples who are abiding in him. Verse 20. And it says, as they, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree weathered to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, to Jesus, Rabbi, look. The fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, and it will be done. Let me just say this first of all, that this is not talking about name it, claim it. All right? This is not saying that whatever you can conjure up, just throw it at the feet of Jesus, and he's going to deliver. And it's also not saying that whoever utters this phrase is almost like, it, like it's an omen that, that that will come to pass. But I think really what he's saying is that those who are in Christ and who have abiding faith, that this is the fruit of what God is able to produce in their lives. And so point four is this. The next slide. That Jesus, bear, uh, that Jesus views be the bearing of fruit as the mark of disciples who are truly abiding in him. That Jesus views the bearing of fruit as the mark of disciples that are truly abiding in him. Disciples, by nature, are fruit-bearing organisms. If you remember in John chapter 15, verse 1, it says that I am the vine and you are the branches. And if you could just um, picture that, right? Like, if you have a person that is, let's say, for instance, they like playing basketball, right? And you have the best teammates in the world. Like, you pick the best players from any generation, and you're the fifth player on that team, and you have the best coach in the game, there's no way that you cannot become a better basketball player. Like, you, like it, it's impossible. Like, there has to be something that rubs off from those people and being in that environment that causes you to be able to become better at that particular thing. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples in John 15 that I am the vine. Once you are connected to me, 
you have all of the life that you need. And not only that, you have the best vine dresser in the business, God himself. And so that combination means that there is, there is no option that we have as truly true disciples who are abiding in him to be able to bear fruit. And so in John chapter 15, verse 3, Jesus says to his disciples, Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Neither can you unless you abide in me. He already told his disciples that they were clean. But in order to bear fruit, he says, neither can you unless you abide in me. And so the message for us today is we need to be in a position of abiding in Jesus in order to bear fruit. A couple of verses later in John 15, verse 8, Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so prove to be my disciples. So prove to be my disciples. So therefore, the bearing of fruit is the mark that we are abiding in Jesus. So what does all of this mean? Image 3 explained. What is that fruit that he's talking about? Verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe you have it, uh, believe you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive your sins. And so what is this talking about? Image, chap- uh, image three explained. Next slide. Those who abide in Christ have the fruit of unshakable faith. And what this is talking about is not the extent to which you can conjure up how God will fulfill your wildest dreams. That's not the intent. And God may do that for some people. But really what this faith is, is having confidence in him even if he doesn't. Even if he doesn't give you the wildest dream that you want, that there is still that confidence in him. This kind of faith is having the persuasion that God would bring his plan to fruition regardless of the limitations and regardless of the means, that God will accomplish his perfect plan for you. It's a faith that is free of the constraints of doubt. It's confidence in God to do what seems impossible. That kind of fruit, that kind of fruit, And that kind of faith, you you can't muster up. Like God has to work in your life to bring that kind of faith about. It's not a homework assignment where you say, okay, well, I'm going to work on my faith today. God has to give you that. That's the fruit that comes as a result of our abiding in him, that he gives us that kind of faith. Number two, the fruit of answered prayer. And again, we know we, we can't make our prayers be answered. Like that, that's something that we don't have control over. But what God does do 
is that the more that you abide in him, is the more that he conforms our hearts to his. And we begin to pray according to his desires. And those are the prayers that Jesus answers. Jesus answers prayers that are according to his desire. And so if you aren't hearing from God, something's off somewhere. See, the God is lying or something's wrong with us. Either one or the other. Abiding in Jesus conforms our hearts and our minds to his. And he answers those prayers. Where prayers are no longer self-centered and about things that we want. But our prayers are more in, in, in alignment with what burdens the heart of God. Do we have that? Do we have that? Do we feel that? Thirdly, the fruit of forgiveness. The ability to forgive as God forgives. That is a gift. There's some of us here today who've been through some really terrible things where people have really done us wrong, really done us dirty, grimy stuff. And to be able to extend the grace that God has given us to other people, that is a gift. That is the fruit of abiding in him. You can't force yourself to forgive somebody. Like, we do that. Oh, okay, well, I give you. I forgive you. Like, my, my clients do that all the time. No, I need you to apologize to your brother. All right, I'm sorry. <laughs> no heart behind it. They, they, they'll say the words, but where's the heart? That's the fruit of abiding in Jesus. And so Jesus gives us three images. Him coming in on a wild donkey. A picture of a barren tree. And he gives us a picture of fruitfulness. I want to give you a moment to really reflect on those three images. And what is it that God is bringing to mind to you as you reflect on those three images? What do you see when you see a donkey and Jesus being led, knowing that he is all-powerful, the king of the universe, being led down the street on a wild donkey that does not want him on his back? What do you see? Do you see yourself there? A barren tree. Do you bear the appearance of fruitfulness? When people get close to your life, what do they see? Picture of fruitfulness, fruit of forgiveness, the fruit of faith, the fruit of answered prayer. I want to give you a time to reflect before we transition to our time of communion. What is God burning into your heart right now? as it regards those images. Let's take a moment.